This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Episode 127. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, the usual housekeeping. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and of course on my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those things, go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's Brian with an O. At the top of the page, you have all my social media buttons. You can click on those and it'll take you right to my accounts. Also, while you're there, give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook and audiobook, Forgotten Founders. You don't want to miss that. And if you do like this podcast and want to offer a little financial support, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. All the dollars thrown my way are greatly appreciated. They will help keep the podcast going and help keep the lights on. So, again, I do appreciate any support you want to give. Also, if you have purchased a copy of my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, please go out and leave a review on Amazon. The more reviews, the better. And if you, again, if you do like this podcast, also leave a review on iTunes. Also, the more reviews, the better. So I appreciate all of the support that anyone shows me for the podcast. I do, I do enjoy getting your emails. If you have ideas for a podcast, go ahead and let me know. Um, I may not always respond back to you, but I do enjoy hearing from people that like the show. And I do enjoy getting uh, your emails as well with uh, uh, podcast episode ideas. So today is actually kind of built on one of those. It was somebody had uh, sent me a, a on Twitter an article that was in the Daily Beast. This was uh, uh, published, oh, geez, I don't know the date, um, not, not long ago, um, within the last week. Uh, on the Daily Beast, and, and the title of the article is uh, The uh, Rule or Ruin, What the Confederacy Teaches Us About the Arrogance of Secession. It was published on, on November 5th, excuse me, so uh, just a few days ago. And um, the, the, art, the author of the article, Christopher Dickey, says this, While Catalonia is not defending slavery... Just like the South, it wants to defend its economic and political dominance and will use the language of the oppressed to do so. So I want to get into this particular article and one argument that he makes over and over again that's just simply not true. Now, Christopher Dickey has written a book um, on radical Southerners. Uh, and he's, of course, this is a, a thinly veiled attack on anyone on the right. Uh, and it's a it's a... It's an open attack on uh, secession. He, he's not a secessionist. He doesn't think secession is a good idea. He does make some stupid statements like the fact that uh, Abraham Lincoln was interested in compromise. On the contrary, Lincoln was not interested in compromise at all. Uh, Lincoln could have saved the Union over and over again, but chose not to do so. Lincoln could have uh, openly advocated for, say, the Crittenden Compromise, which would have saved the Union. It probably would have kept the uh, southern states in the Union. But he, he told people, he told the Republican Party behind the scenes, don't compromise. I guess uh, Mr. Dickey doesn't know that. Uh, or uh, Lincoln could have uh, accepted the offer of the South Carolinian delegation that had gone to Washington, D.C. to purchase federal property. But he, uh, he and William H. Seward refused to meet with him. Uh, so that would have avoided war. He, they could have just purchased Fort Sumter. South Carolina never fires at Fort Sumter, and we never have a war. 
Uh, so it didn't have to go to war. And this idea that somehow Lincoln was pursuing compromise is just idiotic. Uh, and he, his example is that Lincoln came out and said, well, I support the proposed uh, 13th Amendment, which would uh, which would uh, per- keep slavery perpetual in the states where it already existed. This was kind of a silly amendment anyways, for the simple reason that the general government couldn't interfere with the institution of slavery where it already existed anyways. Uh, the, the whole issue uh, was, and if you look at the, at the conflict leading up to this, which is why I did a podcast on why slavery, was the extension of slavery in the territories. Uh, everyone knew that, that the... United States government wasn't going to do anything about slavery in the states where it already existed. Uh, even the people that were trying to put forward in these uh, South in these Southern secession conventions, the cooperationists or the conditional unionists, when they were trying to advance different ideas, never in their wildest imagination believed that slavery was going to be uh, ruined in Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi. They didn't think that at all. Uh, of course, you know, sometimes rhetoric will get there, but for the, the fact being, uh, these people did not think that somehow, with Lincoln's election, slavery was doomed in the state of Louisiana, or uh, South Carolina, or North Carolina. They didn't think that at all. And Seward understood that there were still slave states in the Union when Lincoln took office. Uh, so what are you going to do with them? I mean, it's obviously slavery is not being destroyed in those states. So uh, this is... It's a very bad argument. But there's one thing that he keeps talking about over and over again. And this is the, there's actually a quote that he, I'm going to quote this. He says, quote, Radical Southerners, as I wrote in Our Man in Charleston, Britain's secret agent in the Civil War South, wanted to secede because the South was used to being the richest and politically the most powerful part of the United States. When that economic and political dominance was threatened in the middle of the 19th century, the radicals argued the South should get out of the Union altogether. So let me dissect that that part of it, and then I and then I want to get into another thing that he, he tends to say, uh, which is incorrect. So the South, yes, had dominated the government. The South had always dominated the government. Uh, in fact, of the first five presidents, four were Southerners. When you look at uh, and then you move forward, of the first um, you know seven presidents, five are Southerners. Uh, and then you move forward from that, you'll find that Southerners, or at least people with Southern sympathy, dominated the government. When you look at the most important jurist of the age, John Marshall, he was a Southerner. Now, of course, he's a nationalist, but he's a Southerner. Uh, you look at who wrote the, Const- the father of the Constitution, is James Madison. You could also make a case that John Rutledge of South Carolina was instrumental in the Constitution. From So a Southerner. Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. In fact, you could say the United States was a Southern creation in many ways. But what you had from the South, from the beginning, was, even if you look at Jefferson's administration, you look at Madison's administration, or you look at Washington or Monroe, all of these people in some ways were nationalists but with limited power. They believed in what benefited and burdened all in the Union equally. That was the general welfare of the Union. When you look at the original ideas of the American system, of course, advanced initially by someone like Hamilton, but then Henry Clay, called the champion of the American system, Clay was a Southerner from Kentucky, from Virginia slash Kentucky. When you look at what the, the idea was there, is that we would have some type of union that benefited all. Benefited farmers, benefited manufacturers. When Jefferson, uh, the Jefferson administration was able to get the Embargo Act rammed through Congress, 
uh, he remarked that this was going to help American manufacturers. When the War of 1812 was over, and people like Calhoun threw the North a bone by arguing for a more uh, a higher tariff to protect their industries, the, the idea was that they were going to help the North, which had been hurt by the war. The North, however, the Deep North, was always interested in its own economic well-being. It had only started saying secession was illegal when it was clear that it didn't help them any longer because the North was advocating secession over and over and over again. And I guess Mr. Dickey doesn't know that about American secession, that the first section to publicly advocate secession multiple times, in fact, even attempting to pull it off at one point, just didn't have enough support, was New England. You can go back to the Hartford Convention and find that, or the Essex Junto. Or even in 1794, when uh, Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King pull aside John Taylor of Caroline and say, Taylor, this thing's not working. We want out. So this is, this is clear that the North was highly involved in this from the beginning. But it wasn't just about the fear of losing economic or political dominance. Uh, though there, the South still was dominating the government up until the election of 1860. I mean, my gosh, James Buchanan was seen as a man who was a doe-face, he was too Southern in sympathy. James Buchanan perhaps had a male lover from Alabama. Uh, you know, when you look at Franklin Pierce, one of his best friends was Jefferson Davis. So even if, even if the South was somehow not in power in terms of the executive office, they still had a tremendous amount of power in the Congress. They still essentially controlled that. So is that what all this was about? Just about, uh, you know, defending their own supremacy, their own hegemony in the general government. So it's a dumb argument. But not just that, one of the arguments he makes over and over again in this particular piece is that somehow secession was a rich man's uh, war in a poor man's fight. Um, and he says that for Americans following the news here in Europe, I think there is quite a lot to be learned from our own example, but it takes a much better understanding of what happened in 1860 than most of us, or for that matter, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly and spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders seem to have. Yeah, okay, thanks uh, for your interpretation. Uh, but anyways, uh, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is just a silly argument. Um, and when you look at this rich man's war, poor man's fight, essentially what he says is that the South, um, the South, the leaders in the South were dragging these, these non-slave owners or smaller slave owners with them. So it was only the small cabal of very rich guys that were pulling everyone else into the war. Um, and so... <laughs> So he goes back, he says, contrary to what Kelly or spokeswoman Sanders may believe when they suggest that compromise could have avoided the Civil War, there had been, in fact, compromise after compromise with the slaveocracy of the South, dating back to the ratification of the Constitution in 1789, which at Southern insistence also ratified the institution of slavery. It did. There was no discussion about abolishing slavery in Philadelphia. The Constitution allowed the slave-owning states to count Negroes as 60% human for purposes of representation of the House of Representatives, while giving the same slaves 0% protection under the law. They were afforded no civil rights, no human rights, nor indeed common humanity. 
So if the census showed a state had 100,000 white residents and 100,000 slaves, it counted as equal in Congress to a state with a population of 160,000 people, even though none of the slaves could vote. Well, that's interesting because women and children couldn't vote either. So, I mean, but we still counted them. Uh, and in fact, uh, it wasn't Southerners who, um, who wanted to count slaves as, I mean, they wanted to count slaves as one whole person. You go back to the Philadelphia Convention and find why they wanted to do that because they were worried about being taxed out of existence. I've already talked about this on this podcast, but uh, that, that's, um, that's another argument in and of itself. But, and then he gets into this tired argument that Lincoln was trying to avoid the war, which he wasn't. I mean, it's very clear he wasn't. Uh, and so this rich man's war, poor man's fight, I want to get into that because there's this very old book, 1962, a book entitled The Secession Conventions of the South. And it was written by Ralph Wooster, published by Princeton University Press. So 1962, um, you know, over 50 years old now. Um, and he did a very good job of looking at the secession conventions and explaining what the different uh conventions wanted i mean or who who comprised the conventions and he, and he goes through in detail what these conventions talked about what they wanted what they advocated the, the different views in the conventions but the concluding chapter is very interesting because and he does this throughout the entire book he shows he has very nice maps showing the breakdown by county where secessionists were where unionists were where cooperationists were or anti-secessionists this type of thing but in the in the conclusion he, he wraps up all of this stuff in a very neat way and uh, he, he brings up several interesting points. Uh, so, first and foremost, he has a table. Median number of slaves held by delegates to conventions in the Lower South. So you're looking at all the Lower South states. South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. Now, he has this broken down into three groups. Conditional unionists, meaning that they would stay in the union if certain conditions were met. Cooperationists who were essentially moderates, these are people that were could see both sides of the issue, and then immediate secessionists. They just wanted out no matter what. So, for example, in the state of South Carolina, the median number of slaves held by the delegates was 37, uh, which is the highest number of any of the states. And of course, South Carolina was out first. There were no other people in that convention except immediate secessionists. But when you go back to this, to the um, to the state of South Carolina, and you and you look at that particular state, uh, and then he actually has a chapter on this, and so he breaks down some things in this chapter, and he's actually doing this um, interestingly enough. He, he's he's following a pattern of say the uh, analysis of the Philadelphia Convention, what these people did, who they were. So you go back to South Carolina and look at this and says, oh my gosh, the, the average number of slaves held was 37. So all of these people were just slave owners. Well, you go back and look at the average actual numbers. 16 delegates to that convention of 169 did not own any slaves, and yet they voted for secession. 17 held between 1 and 10. So now we're up to, uh, what, 33 people that held 10 or under. The largest number... 32 people held between 10 and 20 slaves. And then uh, the next largest was between 50 and 70 at 29. Only one person held 500 or more. Only one delegate. And of course, that person voted for secession. 
But this would seem to imply that this really wasn't a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. That there were people even involved in these secession conventions that were not rich men by any stretch of the imagination. They, they weren't uh, of, the, uh, of the highest incomes in their state. In fact, if only one guy, if only one guy, and then two to three hundred slaves is nine. When you look at who held a hundred or more, you're talking about of 169 people, you're looking at uh, 27 delegates held a hundred or more slaves. So the majority of the convention held a hundred or less. In fact, the majority of the convention held, the vast majority held 70 or less. But a large chunk, 60, held 20 or less. So these were not large slave owners. And you look at the occupations, farmers, lawyers, some planters, of course, physicians, judges, ministers, merchants, teachers, uh, a railroad president, a solicitor, a farmer merchant, a broker, a banker, uh, an attorney general, president of an insurance company, state solicitor, manufacturer, a printer. Uh, you know, so uh, these all these people are not large plantation owners. There were some. Um, and then you look at real property held. Only five people held $100,000 or more of real property. Only seven, $200,000 or more of personal property. So again, very small percentage were actually extremely rich guys. So they weren't duping the, the poorer group into this war. And these people are into this act of secession. These people believed in it as well. Then you look at the state of Mississippi. The cooperationists, meaning the moderates, were the larger group of slave owners compared to the immediate secessionists. In Alabama, slightly the, the immediate secessionists hold slightly more slaves than the cooperationists, but not by many. In Florida, same thing. In Georgia, it was equal. In Louisiana, the cooperationists, or the, un, or the I'm sorry, the conditional unionists actually... Uh, uh, or sorry, I should say the cooperationists held more slaves on average than the immediate secessionists. In Texas, it was even. You go over to the Upper South, and you find there, Virginia, anti-secessionists. Uh, anti-secessionists held four slaves in Virginia, the secessionists nine. The average was nine in the entire convention. In Arkansas, ten was the average number for secessionists. There's no number. Um, the, the median holding for Arkansas anti-secessionists was zero. In Tennessee, it's six and a half for secessionists, two for anti-secessionists. In North Carolina, it's 25 for secessionists, 12 and a half for anti-secessionists. Kentucky is three to two. Secessionists actually had fewer slaves than the anti-secessionists. In Missouri, it was one to one. And then, of course, you also have Maryland and Delaware. But um, when you look at the, the numbers, now in the Upper South, what you can say about the Upper South, the Upper South wouldn't have seceded had Lincoln not sent troops into the South. So these... You know, North Carolina wouldn't have seceded without Lincoln calling up 75,000 troops to put down the quote-unquote rebellion. They would have stayed in the Union. So would have Virginia and Tennessee. Those states would have stayed in the Union. When you look at the, uh, the slave population in the counties of the Lower South, the votes in secession convention. So this is percentage of the total population of slaves. When you look at uh, the... Percentage of slaves in total population of a county, less than 12%, 34 to 16, you had in the lower south. 34 
immediate secessionists, with slaves being less per, less than 12% of the population, 16 cooperationists being less than 12%. When you look at 12 to 25%, it's 36 for immediate secession, 20 for cooperation, 23 to 37%, 54 to 19, 37 to 50%, 64 to 18, uh, 50 to 62, 52 to 14, and on down the line. So the numbers did get higher as you found more and more slaves among the population, but it was still the majority in every single category. So you didn't have people being duped into secession. Same thing in uh, when you look at now when you look at the Upper South. Uh, less than 12% of the population, you found more anti-secessionists than secessionists. But then it evened out in the next group. 12 to 25%, there were more secessionists. 25 to 37%, more secessionists. 37 to 50%, more secessionists, and on down the line. But um, you could make a case in these particular states that the anti-secessionists were from less slaveholding areas. But still, the only reason those states decided to secede was because of Lincoln's call for 75,000 troops. And of course, when you look at the support for secession in these conventions, it didn't matter if you're talking about slave owners or not. Non-slave owners voted for secession too in several of these states. He has wonderful charts that explain this. So it was bigger than just this defense of slavery. There was complex situation going on here in many of these states. It did have to do with political economy. It did have to do with the nature and understanding of the Union. It was a constitutional crisis. It wasn't just about the morality of slavery or the legality of slavery. Uh, in fact, some people said, look, slavery is never better protected than it is under the Constitution. I think Frederick Douglass was right when he said, you know, the Constitution is a pro-slavery document. There's, no, there's really no difference between the U.S. Constitution and the Confederate Constitution on the issue of slavery. The Confederate Constitution express, expressly, uh, expressly states or explicitly states that slavery cannot be abolished by the general government. It doesn't have to in the U.S. Constitution because it was understood that the general government did not have that power unless it was listed in Article 1, Section 8. So neither Constitution, the general government and neither, neither Constitution had the ability to abolish slavery. The states could, though. The Confederate Constitution didn't prohibit the states from doing so. Just as in the U.S. Constitution, the, the Constitution in Article 1, Section 10 did not say the states cannot abolish slavery. So, uh, you know, the states could do whatever they wanted. But both documents, if you want to say the, the, the Confederate Constitution was pro-slavery, then so was the U.S. Constitution. They're both pro-slavery. So this particular argument where you know people were fighting and dying, you know, poor guys were fighting and dying for the rich people of South Carolina, it's just it's just a silly argument. Um, poor people voted in large numbers for secession too, not because they were duped into it, but because they thought it was the right path to take. Um, and so I think when you look at Mr. Dickey, now I believe Mr. Dickey is from England. Uh, and I think um, Christopher Dickey is from England, and so, uh, or he's, he's not from the United States, he's from Europe. Uh, but when you look at uh, his arguments, I mean, this is a European telling, uh, telling the, <laughs> the United States what to think about its own background what to think about its own war, and somehow he knows more than others. It's just a silly argument, and, and not, very, not very nuanced, and simply the stuff of you know, ridicule in many ways. 
Uh, he he makes statements that he cannot back up. Now he does say something here. He says uh, he's gonna he's gonna narrow down the war into 140 characters so that even an attention challenged tweeter like President Donald Trump might understand it. The South seceded to defend slavery. The North went to war to stop secession. Well, uh, the South um, <laughs> did it secede to quote unquote defend slavery. Slavery was already being defended. It was concerned about the the status of slavery in the territories, not to defend the institution as it already existed because there was, not, there was nobody attacking that. Uh, the, the abolitionists were in a small minority. Nobody was attacking slavery as it already existed in the South. So certainly his argument just lacks nuance. Uh, and I think this is the great problem with our current political situation. You can't have nuance. There is one interpretation of the war, and I would say it is the radical northern position. Uh, and we, we should start calling it out that way. It's the radical northern position. The war, you know, southerners were committing treason. That's the radical northern position that was advanced after the war was over. Not, not before the war, clearly not. Not during the war, by some. But this is the radical northern position. The South seceded to defend slavery. That is the radical northern position. I mean, this is, this is something we should start saying, because people often say, this is the radical southern position. Well, we need, I think the exact, we need to throw it back on them. Well, no, what you're, what you're advancing is the radical northern position. The, the idea that the South, it was a much more nuanced situation. There was a, you know, open disagreement about the status of states and what states could and could not do. This was held by the majority of Americans throughout most of American history. It's only been the last, say, you know, 20 years, really, 30 years maximum, that we've started seeing the narrative shift in a different direction. But that's because you have uh, the phonerites and others in the, uh, in the mainstream now, and they are advancing the radical northern position. And so it needs to be called out as that. It needs to be actually shown that this is essentially uh, you know, ridiculous uh, and that there isn't just one truth when it comes to uh, this particular grand event in American history and the sectional conflict and everything that led to it. Uh, I think that um, you, know, you can say there is, uh, you, you can look back and say, well, certainly there were Southerners who were saying that you know, we're fighting to defend slavery. You can find that. You can find Northerners said we're fighting to, to get rid of slavery. But what you'd find for most, Amer most Americans is it was neither. Southerners actually said they were fighting against slavery, their own enslavement by the general government. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this is, to say, again, this is a rich man's war, poor man's fight, is to, is to minimize the contributions and the intellect of Southerners who willingly went to war in 1861, and many of them died for principles beyond the defense of slavery. People who didn't own many slaves or very few slaves siding with secession uh, when there were not large planters that had economic muscle, these type of things. I mean, this was not the case. But they did view the situation as teetering, the, the balance of the union getting out of, getting out of whack because of people like Abraham Lincoln and the election of the Republicans. So I think it's important to understand that, to know... You know, look at these these this information that's out there on these secession conventions, and uh, to to and I would recommend going out and reading this book. I mean, it's it's an interesting book, again, fifty years old, uh, but one that um, is certainly still uh, still well worth your time to go and pick up and read, uh, and go get it in the library. It's probably hard to get uh, elsewhere, um, 
but I, I think that uh, certainly uh, the problem with our current debate is that we don't allow for any type of conversation about causation. Uh, and we don't allow for any of the nuances, and it's just one way or another, it's black or white, and that's it. But it's a much more nuanced situation. And I think the problem is when you have people like Dickey writing uh, these op-ed pieces, this is, and I, I go back to the, the argument I had with Kevin Cruz a few weeks ago, where he showed me articles by the AHA talking about Confederate monuments, and I would say probably 90%, if not more, and I'd have to go back and look, are op-eds. They're op-eds. They're not real articles. It's just somebody running their mouth with an opinion, like this podcast. But they're, they're op-eds. And that is not scholarly work. Uh, so <laughs> what do you do? I mean, you, you, have to, you have to fight back. You have to punch back in some ways. You have to have a voice, and you got to punch back in, in a form that uh, people recognize now, which, of course, would be podcasts and op-eds and things of that nature. But understanding the nuance of the war, I think, is very important. Understanding the complexities of the situation of secession in the southern states and these different counties and what they were doing, I think that's important. Understanding the complexities of who these people were and why they were voting, that's also important. This is a really interesting time in American history uh, because it was an expression of, of self-determination and popular sovereignty in a way that had not been done since 1776. And we spend a lot of time talking about the founding generation, but the founding generation of the Confederacy had time to understand what worked and didn't work in the Constitution. They had time to understand what worked and didn't work in American society, and they were trying to remedy that. Their solution was, we'll get out of the Union, just leave us alone. We're not going to attack you. Just leave us alone, and you can have your government, whatever you want. The United States didn't die in 1860 when South Carolina pulled out of the Union or in 1861 when six other states pulled out of the Union. That didn't happen. The United States government continued to exist. It's just that there were not seven states in it. And if Lincoln had not called up 75,000 troops, you would only have seven states of the Confederacy. It never would have expanded beyond that. So... I think that much is clear, and this idea that Lincoln chose, wanted compromise is just completely hogwash. There's no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence is all the other way. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. <laughs>